This is the Narrative Preacher Podcast, Episode 5. Yes, I know the last episode that went live was Episode 3, and it seems like I'm skipping 4. That's because I am, because I recorded Episode 4 with the Reverend Scott Spence, and it was a good episode, and I enjoyed talking with him, and then I lost the audio file. So, in honor of Scott's contributions, which unfortunately none of you will get to hear because it was some great content, I'm going to skip over his episode number. Hopefully at some point he will consent to coming back on the podcast, although he'll just get a new episode number, but we are going from three to five. Episode five is with Melissa Ashmore, and we're going to talk about the narrative lectionary texts for the month of February. I hope you enjoy it. here with Melissa Ashmore this month. Melissa, please introduce yourself to our audience. Hi, I'm Melissa Ashmore. I am currently open to positions. I'm a founding leader at Fort Worth Interfaith Power and Light, and I work communications for Rainbow Roundup, a family organization. Um, I am UCC, and I am approved for ordination pending call. Um, I guess the other thing to know about me is I'm a homeschooling mom, um, and you can find me at petsalloudschool.org, at runningreverend.org, and at Fort Worth Interfaith Power and Light on Facebook. That is a lot of websites. (laughs) So for all those, you know, search committees that listen to Preaching Advice podcasts, (laughs) Melissa is available and... Maybe looking, although I don't know how actively, what with all of the things that she's doing in the meantime. Correct. So, uh, this is a preaching podcast, as I just mentioned. What can you tell us about your preaching style? Well, I like to think that it's conversational, um, but I think more accurate would probably just to be that it's maybe informal and intimate. Um, I... I, underneath it, am using some, like, lyrical memory tools to use it, so it might come off with a lyrical style sometimes. Hmm. So when you say conversational, you mean in tone, not in the sense of there's an actual, you know, back and forth. Conversation. Correct. I'd like people to feel like they could do that, but I've never had... (laughs) uh, Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, I've never really had anybody who would do that. I have a few like congregations that I've been in that do that, but most it takes a lot of teeth pulling to get people to talk back in the first place. Yeah. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've, I've played around with that to no avail. Although on Christmas day, we had no children's church and one little boy in the congregation decided that the sermon should be a dialogue. And that was, that was interesting, but uh... it could be, it could be, be good or it could be (laughs) interesting it wasn't the best (laughs) i'd pause in my sermon for effect and he'd fill in the next line because he's a little smarty pants so that was that was that was good times uh 
So lyrical methods for memory, does that, uh, I'm assuming that means you write those down ahead of time. Yeah, I mean, I like, like, when I come up to preach, I have an outline. But regardless, I'm always really a manuscript preacher. Like, even if I don't write it down, I have the words in my head that eventually make it onto a paper. And whether I end up using that manuscript or not, um, I usually tuck it in behind, you know, I'll usually tuck it in the podium behind something and then mm-hmm. just have, just have something in my hand. Um, and, and, and really every sermon I've ever written has been on the skeleton of a song or, um, a story or, um, something that I know well, so I can remember where I'm at. Um, so the narrative lectionary helps on that because it's kind of already there, um, you know. So what is the the most out there song you've ever used as a skeleton for a sermon? Um, I should have known that you might ask me that, but <laughs> um, I guess I, a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of things that like I would think are like secular songs. Once I start uh-huh. like using them for for the sermon outline they end up i end up finding meaning in them and imagery in them um pretty much every sting song ever written i think i have done a sermon too do you have a sermon on roxanne i do not but that one would be good (laughs) you had me all excited with every sting found the one that you don't have Yeah, I, was, I, I can put message in a bottle together pretty quick, and yeah, it would uh, it would take some doing to come up with a rock sand. Maybe something with Rahab. I don't know. Uh, well, the Lazarus heart is kind of already written as a sermon anyway. So, yeah. 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 So, you like songs and you like stories. Do you have a favorite that you like to use? Um, I. You know, it used to be my least favorite, and now it's my favorite, and I can never tell them singularly. So it's like a group of three stories, I guess. Okay. You know, it's it's manna from heaven, you know, the feeding the 5,000, the loaves and the fishes. I mm-hmm. can't tell them separately. It's like I always have to tell them together. Um, and Quinn Caldwell, when we he was at Old South, had this sermon where he talked about the, like, anthrop Pelagical significance of bread, Um, and I always like use that as inspiration. And I can't stop preaching this one story about, you know, how deep and significant bread is, and cultural memory um, for things um, that we use every day. Um, And every time I celebrate communion, it comes up. Um, every time one of those scriptures comes up, um, just talking about, you know, that that our deep association with it and probably more than likely about me cooking bread for my family and my family getting mad at me when I don't cook bread for them. You know, those <laughs> type of things. It's amazing how quickly tradition turns into a mandate. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I really thought that my son was really into the Eucharist. Um when I was doing the, the, the worship prep, mm-hmm. um, cause he'd have me come and get him out of the children's class to come and do 
uh, communion with the rest of the church. And as soon as I stopped doing it, he stopped wanting to come and they started using sourdough or something else. Um, and so it was all about the actual bread. <laughs> Doesn't <laughs> taste right. The bread. That's yeah. not the Jesus flavor I'm familiar with. <laughs> exactly. That is delightful. <laughs> Kids are great. All right. Oh. So we are, we are looking at February already. This year is just skipping right on by for me. I don't know about the rest of y'all. And uh, February is, for the most part, actually just one chapter of Luke, with the exception of the last week, which is the Transfiguration. The other three are all Luke chapter 7. Part of that is due to the fact that Luke writes abominably long chapters, and the narrative lectionary creators in their wisdom decided that one chapter per week might be too much but we're about to talk luke 7 for a while and we kick off with luke 7 1 through 17 for february 5th which is the healing of the centurion slave and the raising of the widow's son at nain where did you go with this one melissa well, I think where the writers wanted me to go was back to the prophets, um, to the healing from a distance and that, you know, Jesus is the fulfillment and just reminding us all of that, that backstory stuff. Um, and then, then I was reading this book by Judith Butler. Um, it's called Precarious Life, and it has a whole bunch of essays that she wrote during, um, like, right after 9-11 on mourning. Mm -hmm. And I stuck constantly on the widow um, and how, you know, it's like whose mourning matters, um, whose pain matters. Um, she has this thing where she talked about right after, you know, 9-11, how the the public narrative was all about um, heterosexual, um, gender normative people and how the other lives kind of got minimized. But most important, we didn't hear from their families and mm. we didn't have their mourning and the mourning of Muslims was minimized. Mm -hmm. um, so it was kind of all about... Um, who is allowed to fall apart, I guess, you know, who's allowed to really come undone in public. Um, and that's where I kept sticking. It's probably not where the Luke writers wanted me to go, but that's <laughs> like where, where I guess the spirit and the way that the world is working right now is taking me. Mm -hmm. How about you? I'm, I'm interested in yours a bit more. But, oh, uh, okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there are follow-up questions on this here podcast. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you, you mentioned the, the different lives in regard to 9-11 and, and the ones mm -hmm. that were kind of suppressed and the ones that were not allowed to mourn. I'm just curious mm -hmm. if uh, what what you if you tie that in at all to the various speculative scholarship around uh, the centurion and his relationship with this servant of his. I didn't because I kept just taking, I mean, that, that one with the centurion just was reminded me so much of the, you know, is Jesus powerful enough to, 
be from a distance. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the, the part of the relationship that spoke to me that, that stuck out was the power dynamic. Mm-hmm. How, how he could say, you know, well, this is my placement in, in the system. You know, there's people above me who tell me to do things and I do them. There are people below me and I tell them to do things. Um, but Jesus's kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus is bringing forth is different from that. Um, so it's, it's not a hierarchical thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, I, I, I couldn't let myself go there very, very long, really. Fair enough. No. Yeah. So, as I was as I was working with this text, uh, it struck me that both of these stories are really things that fly in the face of conventional wisdom about how God works, mm-hmm. and uh, I kind of almost taking a, a, a myth busting approach to this particular. Uh, these these two particular passages and talking about the rules that we create for God for Jesus that aren't real and mm. uh, I, I'm drawing an example from my own life of I, I used to work in a coffee shop as I think most poor grad students did at one time or another and just about every Saturday night my coworkers would go out and party and they would invite me along and I'd say, no, I've got to get to church in the morning. And they'd say, okay. And after a couple of months of that, they stopped asking and that was fine because they knew what my answer was going to be. Mm-hmm. And about five months in, we had a, a newer coworker and she said to me on a, a Tuesday night, Hey, Shay, uh, me and some other people are headed over to the bar to play trivia. You want to come? And my supervisor said in a rather nasty voice, uh, oh, Shay doesn't go to bars. He's a Christian. (laughs) And I was like, I, I what? (laughs) I like bars. I especially like trivia. Trivia is kind of my thing. I'd be happy to go. And I, when I said I have to go to church in the morning, I literally meant I've got to wake up for church. I need to not be out till three in the morning. But mm-hmm. turns out what was being heard, at least by this one woman, was something along the lines of, I am a good Christian and I love Jesus and I would never set foot in a house of alcohol, devil music and sin or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And, uh, she was she was floored that I was willing to go to this bar on a Tuesday night. And I said, "Well, the the issue was never the bars; it was the time. it was the it was the Saturday night." <laughs> and, uh, I, I said church because that's the appointment I had, not because I was holier than y'all. Mm-hmm. So, I I've heard different things about who God is willing to help, and mm-hmm. two of the very common ones that I hear is, "Oh, you got to get right with Jesus before." you you can expect anything from god and this runs very contrary to the whole centurion servant thing you know the the Mm -hmm. the early church that was compiling these scriptures that was saying yeah the gospel of luke is something that we want to hold on to they were also passing around literature saying that you can't be both a soldier and a christian Mm 
And mm -hmm. here's this story that they decide to keep around about Jesus helping a soldier with his slave who he loved and whatever their relationship was. You know, Jesus clearly was not a fan of Rome. The early Christians were not fans of Rome, but they thought it was important to say, but Jesus helped this person anyway. Mm -hmm. And the other one that, that I hear pretty frequently, and I, I think is just so damaging, is if you have enough faith, that's that's when God comes in and does things. If you just have enough faith, all you need is faith like a mustard seed or what have you. Mm -hmm. And people beat themselves up over not having sufficient faith because something didn't happen. But I read this story of Jesus and the widow and her son and what I don't see anywhere in this story is anyone other than Jesus acting. The widow doesn't beg Jesus for help. Mm -hmm. The crowds don't say, hey, this woman deserves your help. Certainly the son doesn't ask for anything because he's dead. Jesus just walks over, has compassion, and says, it's going to be okay. Dude, get up. And there's there's no act of faith on the part of anyone no one places any special belief in Jesus until after the fact. And so I'm, I'm looking at these things and, and I'm really hoping to encourage folks to, to let go of the, the rules of operation that we've created for God because God doesn't have time for our dinky little rules. God is going to act the way that God needs to act and we'd best just go along and see where the Holy Spirit is moving and, and join in that work rather than trying to decide whether it's, it's a legitimate act of God. Is, is that, that's one of the things that with this whole month, I was, you know, Luke seven has all these different examples of, you know, Jesus acting on the outsider or, you know, in the cases we go down later into the, um, the woman giving, being forgiven at Jesus's feet that she acts upon him. Is, is that, is that the different, like I was trying to figure out how these two stories are different from all the other ones. Um, do you think it's in that, that it's, um, that it's not according to the rules that, that, you know, it's, it's opposite of how we'd think it would, um, God would be acting. Well, I think that's actually a really common theme in Luke, in my mm -hmm. reading of Luke, at least, is he seems really happy about the whole widening the welcome thing. Mm -hmm. Throughout both yeah. Luke and Acts, there's this common refrain of, oh, surely Jesus wouldn't go that far, and then yeah. Jesus goes that far. So... I don't know that that's especially unique to these two passages, but because they happen to touch on a couple of the rules that for some reason, even after we have these stories, we still pretend like those rules exist. Because yeah. uh, the, you know, the, the, the weeping woman seeking forgiveness, I think at least cognitively, most people would acknowledge that, oh, of course, Jesus can can grant forgiveness of sins, mm -hmm. uh, at least those of us who profess the Christian tradition. And yet we still have these these things that we think Jesus 
either is incapable of doing or if we don't want to say that out loud because we're afraid of the whole omnipotence thing then we might say Jesus would never choose to do these things and I see two very clear examples right next to each other of Jesus basically saying uh, no there are no limits no mm -hmm. and I think that's a good thing especially as we continue to deal with divisions and limits to to who is who is worthy to receive help to receive assistance to uh, be represented in government in all the various ways that that we're seeing play out right now to remember that Jesus has said all are deserving and, and there are no limits so then we are on to February 12th and that is Luke 7 18 through 35 which is when John's disciples confront Jesus and Jesus gives a little snapback so Where'd you take this one? Um, I was taking it where I took it on the doubting of John and his disciples that, you know, is John in a place where he can doubt all those things that he's already told everybody about Jesus? Um, that if he can do that, if, you know, you know, this Jesus, you know, John was the best one to come along in, until Jesus that, um, that if he could have those doubts and that he could be in that place where he would have to send people out to actually watch him do things. I mean, of, I mean, of course they're going to come back and report good things because they're going out to see him actually in the act of things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that even when we see something um, or somebody sees that we trust sees something and tells us about it, that we can be in a place that it's okay to doubt, um, that doubt can be a good thing, that he probably got something better out of it than if he had just stayed in, was John in jail at the time? Um, yeah, he's in prison. Yeah. Yeah. He's in prison. So he's in a, He's in a tough spot um, to be in that tough spot and to, you know, really wonder, well, was I right after all? Um, you know, um, in a, being a lonely place and start questioning things. I, I think it's be that it's OK to be in, questioning things and also um, kind of also going, I don't know. I don't, since I don't have a community that I have specifically in mind for this, I'm kind of thinking that had I, I would kind of take a look at how they do their community engagement and how they do their going out into the world. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and just see if that's, you know, so that John was doubting and not sure of himself, of things that he'd already told people about until his disciples go out and join Jesus in doing something and in, in, in seeing him in the act of being with people. Um, so I'm thinking it's maybe something about how 
action in the world. You see, I'm still working through it as we're talking. <laughs> even that's allowed. It's, it happens. Yeah. yeah, I've I've come away from these with brand new sermons written from what I came mm-hmm. in with. So mm-hmm. that's okay. So I'm I'm looking at metrics for church success this week, <laughs> and as most of us are aware, the preferred metrics for church success by most people's standards are something along the lines of pennies and posteriors, that uh, how much money you have and how many people are in your church on a Sunday is the quick and dirty understanding of whether you are successful as a minister. And if you want to dig in a little more, you can do some some year-over-year comparisons and That'll that'll maybe give you a fuller picture because maybe you've grown and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and John sends his disciples out to Jesus to say, "Are you the guy? Are you the one that we've been waiting for? Is this for real?" Mm-hmm. And Jesus' response could have been the money and the people thing. I I noted as I've read through Luke multiple times in the last few months that his preferred word when talking about the people following Jesus is crowd, uh, or sometimes crowds, because apparently there's a certain One number that is a crowd, and, and he's got multiple. This is after uh, the, the feeding of, of 5,000 men, plus their wives and children, and many thousands of people another time, and th- there's all these these massive groups that are coming out to see Jesus by almost anyone's standards he is essentially a, a megachurch rabbi to, to use our terminology and he doesn't say go back to your master and tell him look at all these people that are coming out to see me look my attendance has exploded in the last three years I went from seven people to 3,000 people, and I've got women giving me money to take care of my ministry, and it's awesome, and we're super successful. That is that is not Jesus's measure of whether he's doing a good job of fulfilling his role. Instead, he says, go back and tell John what you see. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. And the poor have good news preached to them. And I hear that, and I think we need to do a much better job of describing church success in terms of how many lives have been changed by the ministry of this congregation. So I have this crazy plan where I'm going to order some... Uh, what are those called? The the ball pit balls? Mm-hmm. Red ones. I'm going to get a hundred of those. And I'm going to get this big, clear plastic tube that's about as wide as, as one of those balls is. And we're going to have a little uh, church vitality meter that when people see a life changed, they're going to drop a ball in the tube and we're going to see how long it takes to fill it. And then we're going to empty it and we're going to do it again. And that's 
that's the important thing, not the surplus budget or the full sanctuary, mm-hmm. but but how many lives are being changed, or even if we dare ask, how many lives are being saved by what it is that we are doing to further Christ's mission here in our little corner of the earth. So that's going to be fun, I think. Or it's going to be disastrous. I don't know. We'll find out. <laughs> you know, we have a we have a divinity sco- uh, student in a seminary student in my home church, and she has people in class that are always asking her how big the church is. I guess because she talks about the different you know outreach things or the different ministries that there are, and they always ask her how big it is, and she goes, "Oh, twenty or thirty people on." you know, Christmas or, you know, <laughs> Easter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're like, really? <laughs> they're like, oh, yeah, we have 110 and we don't do that. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely a different way of measuring how the church is functioning. And I like the saved um, because that was one of the things when I was thinking about the healing um, that's happening in Luke, that, I mean, is there even any differentiating between the words healing and saved um, in the, in the Greek, I don't know that there is. Um, I haven't checked it recently, but mm-hmm. I, I do think when we, when we talk about saved that for me, it is, we need to be more concrete with that word. Mm-hmm. It needs to stop being this mystical saved means you got your get out of hell free card thing. Yeah. But when when Jesus talked about saving lives, he actually saved lives. Oh, as yeah. in <laughs> kept people living, uh, yeah. <laughs> healed them of illnesses and so forth. And, um, you know, I mean, that that looks very different in our context. We haven't all gone to medical school. There's, there's only so far you can go with happening upon someone who's choking or whatever, but we can certainly affect change. And are there people who need access to healthcare that we can help hook them up? Are there, you know, people that just need someone to, to be present with them to make sure that nothing bad happens for whatever reason. And I I think there are a lot of ways that churches can genuinely save lives. And I'd sure like to explore that, especially as I look at hopefully what will become a focus of ours in the next year at one of my churches in regard to uh, having some contribution to the refugee crisis and at the other church dealing with serious hunger issues in our community, mm-hmm. which are both serious life-saving actions we could be taking. Well, that's one of the things that I do with the environment when we talk about it is that we're talking about um, immediate human impacts too, instead of necessarily a whole bunch of Anglo liberal people out hugging trees, which is not a bad thing, mm-hmm. but, but that is also, you know, um, people of color, um, people who are traditionally marginalized, that there's an immediate impact um, to like the cement factory um, down, you know, it's, it's downwind for me, but (laughs) um, uh, um, you know, the people who are upwind about uh, from it don't care about it nearly as much as the people who are downwind from it. Mm -hmm. And those tend to be the more marginalized people anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, So 
Makes sense. Mm-hmm. All right, February 19th is Luke 36 through 50, Jesus anointed by a woman. Lots of stuff happened. Go for it. Well, uh, I, 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 what was stuck out to me was that in the similar telling of a similar story, um, the Matthew, um, that it's not, people don't get so upset about her being extravagant with the, um, the alabaster jar. They're, um, focused on what they think about this woman, um, and what she is reputed to have done or used to have done, um, who she is and what she does with her life. Um, that it's not what she did, um, which she did stuff for Jesus that, um, he expected his host to do. Um, but that, um, that people were really still stuck on who she was instead of what she did. And and I think that's something that we can take a look at, um, how much time we spend on preconceived notions of who people are and, um, putting into black and white people's, um, political or religious or, um, life choices, um, and making that into a label instead of um, what they actually do with their lives and how they affect other people. Hmm. I like that. So I don't, I don't like this story. I know. Um, I know. This is the, uh, when you said you were doing Luke, I'm like, all right. And then I'm like, Oh, (laughs) Like this in the transfiguration. <laughs> I, I feel very gossipy right off the bat because yeah. that, that that first passage, it's oh, if this woman, if if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is who's touching that she's a sinner. And I have so many different categories for what constitutes a sinner yeah. in first century Judaism that mm-hmm. I don't know how to gauge what it is that this woman has done uh is is she you know just the worst kind of person mm-hmm. or uh is she simply in the habit of being ceremonially unclean and not making the proper sacrifices both of those things constitute being a sinner and I yeah and then I'm, modern I'm yeah. adding my my filter onto that because yeah. Those those were comparable, but I'm mm-hmm. you know that's 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 question one for me is what what kind mm-hmm. of center which I don't mm-hmm. get an answer to and annoys the heck mm-hmm. out of me. Uh, but then Jesus, he seems to to affirm this Pharisee's perception of this woman. With mm-hmm. his little parable about the one who owes 500 silver coins and the other who owes 50. And, and when they're both forgiven, which of them will love him more? And Simon says, oh, the one with the bigger debts. I mean, first of all, he's saying that this woman is is a worse sinner than someone mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. Again, I have no idea why, because I don't know what she's done. But that feels odd to me coming from Jesus. Mm-hmm. And... 
then the idea that there's there's a difference in the level of love to a creditor based on how much debt has been canceled which also seems to run contrary to jesus and and i know he's putting this story in terms that his host is going to understand and and i mm -hmm. i deeply appreciate that jesus who i believe is god incarnate uh, took the time to explain things in ways that his audience would understand rather than being concerned with, well, let me explain to you genetics, even though you're not going to study that field for 2,000 years. Uh, it, in general, that's that's a very appreciated aspect of his ministry. But in, in this case, it just it leaves me very confused because I'm trying to figure out, is this something that Jesus agrees with or does he not actually endorse the premise and he's just trying to get simon the pharisee to understand things and and the text is annoyingly silent about it yes yeah. so it's it's very much a frustration to prepare on and i probably just talked more about preparing on it than, than i will <laughs> about the the message that that i glean from it but um it does end up being this question of hospitality and who is authorized to do ministry. Ah, yeah. mm -hmm. And on the one hand, I am a, 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 an ordained clergy person who believes very much in the, the value and the need for ordained clergy persons. On the other hand, I look at many churches and am reminded that there's the expectation that the ordained people are, are the professional religious people and the rest of us are kind of here on the sidelines or maybe we don't have to do all the stuff. And Yeah, you, don't have to do the work of it. Yeah, You have Simon the Pharisee who is supposed to be doing the work, which in this case is providing... Uh, hospitality to his guest in keeping with the cultural standards of the day and he has failed to do so and on the other hand you have this woman who i would assume based on the way simon thinks about her is not even a member of his household she she's not an authorized agent of simon and yet she is the one that provides the hospitality that is required and so I'm hoping, once I can get past all of the aspects of this passage that frustrate me, that my sermon will be <laughs> something about how we don't just leave things up to the professionals. We get out there and we do. We don't wait to be perfect. We don't wait to be not a sinner. We just act in the ways that God compels us to act and, and carry god's hospitality into the world and, and offer that extravagant welcome to all because we know that we have received it and ought to want to pass it on to others i like that i like that take on authority and um where it comes from and who who can have it and i, I always just picture her just like wandering in from the street 
you know, that yeah. she's not, she's not even really an audience member. She's like, oh, there's cool things going on. I could, should see what, you know, Jesus is doing today. Well, she, you know? she's been, she's been following Jesus. Uh, mm-hmm. just, you know, a woman of that town who was a sinner learned that Jesus was dying. And so she heard about this guy and apparently she's been waiting for him to show up and she's got her little perfume and I have <laughs> to go do this thing for Jesus, which is just the coolest thing. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to hear more people. Oh, I've got to go do this thing for Jesus now. I would, <laughs> I would wholeheartedly. Ind- I mean, I'd have questions, but I think in general, I would be supportive of someone wanting to go do <laughs> work for Jesus in the world, assuming you know it was in keeping with the spirit of Jesus. Yeah. Uh, I, I have actually had. Um somebody wandering we used a public building and i was not preaching that day um thank goodness <laughs> but she she wandered in into the sermon and said a few things during the sermon and so i was downstairs um uh with the children and i hadn't um realized what was going on and she came back down and she basically did the equivalent of anointing me she touched the child i was holding um, and said, you will know Jesus. Um, and it was, it was not scary to me at the moment when it happened. Hmm. Um, but it was after the fact when I realized <laughs> that she, she had been upstairs and, and she, she came to preach the word. <laughs> wow. Um, um, and you know, um, that I guess, Things like this, I mean, people can just wander in, you know, just heard what you're doing and want to check it out. (laughs) I like it. Mm -hmm. So, last but not least, the Transfiguration. Luke 9, something through something, 28 through 45, I want to say. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. This one, when this one was the one I did not want to spend time working with, um, but it ended up being actually the one that I felt the most connected to. You know, I thought I thought the 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 woman at Jesus's feet was going to be oh that one's easy, but that one was the more challenging. The Transfiguration one for me, maybe because I'm not in a community and I can be more vocal politically um that the transfiguration um to me um really spoke to the times and really mm-hmm. spoke to what some people need to hear right now um you know there's just all that like son of man imagery and you know the mountain that you know i guess we're supposed to think about mount sinai and you know having the former prophets up there and, you know, just that, that Jesus is going to be a king unlike the other kings, um, that humans, humans just are, humans can become like creatures, um, like in monsterish, that humans are flawed and Humans can lust for power and um, that we need to measure our kings um, in a different way, um, mm-hmm. you know, and that this really is an 
ultimate sign that God has not forgot about um, liberation and God doesn't forget about the oppressed and whether it happens when you expect it to on your own timeline or not, um, that there is um, liberation coming and we can decide to take part in it as we want to, but that, you know, basically is really that God doesn't forget. God promised these things before and it's taken longer than we expected it to in the first place. Mm. Um, but here is Jesus did come <laughs> just not when they expected him to come, <laughs> you know, so that when we expect something to happen, it may not happen exactly in the order or the time we expect it, but that it's coming, that God will break through with something new. Um, so I, I, I see hope. I see a lot of hope in that. Um, I like hope, mm-hmm. especially since this is the last Sunday before Lent. So mm-hmm. you won't get it for a while. Any, any hope you can carry with you over the next seven weeks, uh, yeah. grab on. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, you know, we preach in a time when we already know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So we can have that hope because we already know how the story ends. Yep. Um, so I, I know I know a lot of churches don't allow you to have it, but um, we're allowed to have it here. <laughs> <laughs> good. Very good. So before I, I, I get into my thing, I just... General note to any pastors listening to this, you you may recall that Moses encounters God on Mount Sinai and also Elijah encounters God when when God walks by. God tells Elijah to go up on a mountain and a powerful wind uh, tears the mountains apart and breaks up the rocks and God's not in the wind and all that whole story. That's in uh, uh, 1 Kings 19. So If any pastor listening to this wants to do a transfiguration sermon about Jesus talking to Elijah and Moses through a time rift (laughs) and send me the audio, you will receive 100 fictional internet points uh, certified by me. So I, I would fully endorse that particular interpretation for someone other than me to preach because it's delightful and also completely wrong so yeah send me send me those videos and you will get the points so what i what i am doing with this passage is i am comparing the transfiguration to christian camp yay oh camp Camp. everyone loves camp uh not just christian camp but any any of those those things in our lives that are the holy huddles, as they're sometimes termed. Those those opportunities to get together with other Christians and get really jazzed up about being Christian and excited about how cool God is and, and why don't we worship all the time and have Bible study all the time and just live in, in, in Christian community with each other and isn't this great and how... Usually by the time, if if you're talking about a Christian camp, you know, you get back dirty on Sunday, and by Tuesday, your parents kind of talk you into taking a shower, and then Thursday, you maybe go see friends, and by about Saturday, or, you know, the next Sunday when you're in church, you're just completely back to to life as normal, Mm -hmm. and this transfiguration 
happens on the calendar every year just before Lent. And the, the way that we could carry those things that we that we glean that we hold tight to during those holy huddles into the rest of our lives would require discipline would require discipleship would require putting in a great deal of effort to actually living out the principles of what it means to be christian in our day-to-day -day lives and lent is among other things, really a period of discipline. We, we fast as a symbol of that discipline, or, or we engage in some kind of intentional spiritual discipline to mark that season, which I'm going to really encourage my folks to take seriously taking on a new spiritual discipline during Lent. But it's it's a both and. It's, it's going to the mountaintop and, and having that experience, but then using discipline, using spiritual practice to hold on to that and to carry it out. Because if, if you leave it at the mountaintop, if you leave those experiences behind and just want to get back up there, just want to keep returning, you're missing the point. You know, Jesus was transfigured one time mm -hmm. and the disciples wanted to stick around. They were really excited. Why don't we just stay here? This is great. And instantly, Jesus' response is, no, we've got to go back down the mountain, and we've got to get to work. And if we are not taking what we gain, what value we receive in our gatherings together, and applying them to our lives when we are scattered back out into the world, then we're really missing the point of this whole thing. And especially as we're, we're right on the precipice of Lent, I, I want to encourage our folks to, to really purposefully engage spiritual discipline as a way of holding on to the hope of Jesus Christ through the season of Lent and through any difficult period in their lives. So that is... That is what I am doing, despite really wanting to do a terrible time-traveling sermon. All right, well, we just made it through all of the February passages. Melissa, any parting shots before we say goodbye to you? No, I don't think so. Well, thank you very much for coming on. This has been a wonderful way to spend a few, almost an hour, and I'm looking forward to having you back sometime. Maybe when you have a community that you're preaching to. Yes, because that I noticed that definitely changes. I was able to just, I kept wanting to just sit with one instead of moving on to the next. And I really, <laughs> you know, there is a real discipline to going on to the next one instead of staying with that one and living with the same one. Go on to a different one and be in context with that community. Um, mm -hmm. It's It's hard to breathe when you're doing that, but it's a good discipline all right well thank you for coming and we'll talk to you later thank you very much bye bye